So I think the, the reason why AI is big now is I think the value that AI can generate. So we and others have, have all published various articles on sizing AI. So when we did this, I think this was pre-pandemic a few years back, um, again, uh, AI can contribute close to some $15 trillion worth of value. Data, artificial intelligence, the metaverse, crypto and Web3, and quantum computing are just a few of the technology innovations that are changing the way we live, work, and experience the universe. I am your host, Ganesh Padmanabhan, and this is Stories in AI, a podcast where we explore the various facets of technologies like AI, its impact on individuals, organizations, and the society. You will hear from a variety of experts and practitioners, their personal stories, their best practices, and advice to put technology to work. I hope you enjoy this engaging conversations. Now, before we begin, a note about our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Experian, whom you may know as the Consumer Credit Bureau, but they are at heart a data company. When you're buying a car or home, sending your kids to college, or borrowing to grow your business, Experian is most likely helping you behind the scenes. They unlock the power of data to make better decisions, get access to financial services, and to prevent crime, unlocking a whole world of opportunities for individuals and organizations. Find out more at Experian.com. Welcome back to Stories in AI. Today, I speak with Anand Rao. He's the global head of artificial intelligence at PwC Consulting. Now, I've known Anand for over four years and have followed his work on AI and operationalizing AI, ethics in AI, governance. And Anand brings a very, very interesting perspective with his background, with a PhD with specialization in AI. He's been working in AI for 35 plus years. And he's got a background from research to influencing businesses and business leaders, set up AI centers of excellence to consulting for organizations to build and develop the AI-powered solutions. Anand has widespread recognition in the field of AI. And he was his one of his papers on multi-agent systems was the most influential paper in AI. And he was part of the top 50 data and analytics professionals in the United States. He holds a PhD from the University of Sydney and an MBA from the Melbourne Business School. He's, Anand is also a um, adjunct professor at the Bitspilani AI Center. He is part of the advisory board at the Oxford University's Center for Ethics and AI. He's also part of the World Economic Forum's Global AI Council, the OECD, the Responsible AI Institute, the Nordic AI Institutes, and a ton more. Now, Anand is one of the people that we should all listen to when we want to learn about AI and understand what it is in the world today. I had a great conversation with Anand. We talked about everything from how our organization's approaching AI, the similarity and the differences between singularity and Eastern philosophies, Advaita, the concept of Advaita. We talked about how should organizations approach their efforts in scaling their AI journeys. And we talked about ethical AI, responsible AI, all the challenges and the big opportunities in front of us with this wonderful technology. I really enjoyed this conversation and I hope you do too. Hey Anand, welcome to the show. It's great to see you again. Great to be here, Ganesh. Thanks for inviting me. Now, this is awesome. It's been probably three or four years since we met in person. You were in town in Austin about to teach a class at UT, right? It's been, uh, right. Yeah. It's been amazing. And the whole world changed in between all that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Lots of things have happened by then. <laughs> since then. All right. So again, thanks again for making the time here. I... Um, so this show is all about like, you know, trying to get stories about AI, of AI from people like you to inspire action from others, right? So why don't you start by telling us how did you get into AI and what got you here? Yeah, uh, yeah, good question. So uh, I'm, I started in, I should say, computer science uh, way back in the 70s in India. And I was a high school student, and one of my cousins, who's still my mentor, um, was in the Institute of Science and was sort of programming and, and doing all kinds of things. So he actually taught me 
to program in Fortran uh, through letters. Uh, he was in London and he was teaching me through letters. And without wow. a computer, I was programming, i.e. writing code without really knowing whether it will run or not uh, for at least a year. And then uh, uh, I, I was determined at that time, this was my 11th grade in India, so I was determined at that time, so I should take up computer science. Um, eventually took computer science from Bitspilani, so did my undergrad master's there. And then I was very keen on moving on to cutting edge area of computer science, which surprisingly, even then it was AI. <laughs> I know now the cutting edge is AI, but even then it was the cutting edge was AI. Uh, I got a scholarship um, from uh, University of Sydney um, in, in Australia. So moved there, did my PhD, then settled down in Australia, went to Melbourne with a spin-off of SRI International. Uh, so worked quite a lot with the SRI International and the Stanford uh, uh, AI groups there primarily on DAPA, NASA, more the aerospace and defense. This is throughout the 90s. Um, taught uh, at computer science in, in Melbourne and, and did all of that probably 12, 13 years. That's when the AI winter hit. And when the AI winter hit, I was also getting more interested uh, because it was a startup, getting more interested in marketing, talking to people and, and, and a much broader things than just tech. And of course, I was being branded as a techie so I had to go get myself a badge from as an MBA. And once I did that, I obviously during that, I got more interested in finance and uh, some of the software elements. So I joined a consulting company in Australia, then spent a few years in uh, London, uh, six, seven years in London, and then moved to Boston, which is where I am now. And so I would say one third of my career has been in core AI technology, more in the aerospace defense. The next one third, purely into the the strategy side of consulting, strategy and uh, and customer uh, type of consulting, and then uh, 2007 eight, the world started changing again with the AI on the ascendancy. I just started picking up slowly one by one, uh, big data analytics, AI, and then started applying it to the business world, and that's that's where I am now. So the last one third of my career is very much around this. Uh, uh, you know, it's it's fascinating. A friend of mine who uh, is a professor at UT, uh, he's been working on AI for like 30 something years. And he tells me about this joke when his daughter tells him, well, dad, you must not be that good in AI because you've been working on this for the last 35 years. It's still not taken off, right? So uh, yeah. it's fascinating. <laughs> now I also understand your Australia connection because I saw you were helping the Australian government shape their AI policy as well, right? Yeah, so we did have a, have a talk early this morning, in fact, so where Australia released their uh, AI plan. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll come to that. And I think the, the other thing that you said, you know, Fortran 77, I, had, I did mechanical engineering undergrad in India. And, you know, even though I was already coding in C and at that time, Unix was a big thing. But um, I had to, to pass my uh, first semester or second semester exams. One of the things I had to take a Fortran 77 course, even though we had one CNC machine where we can actually run it. So we all used to handwrite this code too, right? It was very, it, it, yeah. was, a, it was a fascinating experience uh, yeah. from that perspective. So, no, before we go, yeah. Very yeah. <laughs> uh, so before we go into AI, I think one of the things that we both share a passion for is Vedanta and teachings of the Eastern philosophy. and. Um, I, I saw this during this pandemic, one of the projects you had where you started this blogs, blog or a site called PAVE, right? Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, so the site PAVE is more on practical applications of Vedanta in, in everyday life. And the, the reason I got into it is, I mean, immediately after my, after my PhD, I wanted something, something solid, something I'd sort of read a lot about the, the Western philosophers uh, as I did my PhD in AI, symbolic logic, model logic, and so on. And I was sort of thirsting for the Eastern side. Of course, growing up in India, you do assimilate quite a bit of the, the overall um, uh, philosophy, but not really read anything, right? So obviously heard about Gita, but not really read it. So that's when I joined one of the, one of the groups, Shinmya Mission, uh, in Australia and started learning more and more. And since then I've been teaching. So my interest in the Eastern philosophy 
uh, I think there is a very interesting connection between that and what I do in AI. Um, and the connection essentially comes from, I know everyone in the AI world has heard about singularity, right? So, uh, mm-hmm. of course, the, the book on singularity is near um, and, and everything on the AI side. Now, in Vedanta, as you know, we refer to it as Advaita, right? So Dvaita mm-hmm. means two and Advaita means non-dual. Yep. So if you think of it, in, in its meaning, it is the same. Right, so the Eastern philosophy is saying non-dual, which is, I think, a better way of saying there is only yep. one thing, right? Singularity. But it goes beyond that. If you actually dig deeper, uh, I can probably talk for an all hour, hour on this, but I'll try and finish it. But if you look at uh, uh, just the, the notion underlying this, it's very much around, if you look at singularity, everything happens, uh, all matter and energy is about computation, uh, is, mm-hmm. the, is the thesis uh, under, under singularity. Similarly, if you take uh, singularity from a physics perspective, it is that one singular point uh, where all of the math equations and physics equations fail, the starting point yep. of the universe is singularity. And if you look into the Eastern philosophy, that's exactly what they talk about. They talk about the existence and consciousness, and that's nothing but the primitive form of computation is just, quote unquote, being aware, being there, right? So that's why it's sort of so close to each other. I love the consciousness and how do you get consciousness into machines or AI? So that's the connection between the two. It's a beautiful connection and we have to have a, future episode just to focus and and dig deeper into that construct and i have a similar history this thought definitely i've gone through this this process myself and early days of when i was getting excited about ai as a technology that i want to basically spend my next couple of decades working on right it was very exciting it was not too long ago but it about 10 years ago and i was watching all these movies that in the hollywood picture uh, you know the way hollywood pictures ai and one of the things, and that was around, you know, accidentally the time that I actually ran into uh, the, 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 I think it was one of the, uh, the famous books on the, all the Upanishads, they summarized mm-hmm. it and uh, um, uh, Rajagopalchari, I think mm-hmm. the book, and it, it talks about, and I, and everywhere you go through it, this whole thing about the Advaita, the whole concept keeps coming back. Yep. And I wonder, like, it's like the beginning and the end, you know, mm-hmm. when we talk about singularity being the end state. Yep. And if you really look at Eastern philosophy and Advaita being the beginning state, right? It's just yep. one big circle, which again is actually the, the concept behind Advaita. Anyway, yep. so fascinating. Well, let's talk AI here. That's what we're here to talk yep. about, right? Yep. So tell me, why is AI such a big deal? Yeah. Break it down for me. The AI, I mean, in some sense, yes, AI is very much a big deal now. Uh, but AI has been around, as you know, since 1956 at least, so maybe even before that, but at least the words AI was coined um, mm-hmm. in 1956 in the Dartmouth conference. So I think the, the reason why AI is big now is, I think, the value that AI can generate. So we and others have, have all published various articles on sizing AI. So when we did this, I think this was pre-pandemic a few years back, um, again, uh, it, AI can contribute close to some $15 trillion worth of value just in terms of how it can uh, enable more businesses to make money, right? To generate value, generate consumer surplus, and that consumer surplus might go to the consumers as opposed to companies. Some will be monetized by the companies, as well as certain automations which will save time, right? So if you if you take that kind of computation, uh, it is quite a lot. Uh, that's one aspect of it. So there is a lot of value, and obviously we and others have talked about it. Uh, as a result of that, and all the other developments that have happened to get us there, uh, again, uh, there have been waves of different types of AI uh, that have come through, and we are getting to the stage where I think a number of different factors have led to the ascendancy of AI. Uh, one is obviously the, the huge amount of data, right? So comparing the data today versus what we had in even the 90s is sort of incomparable, right? So just the volume of data. The other key thing is, I would say, is the open source nature of how we work. 
uh, I still remember in the late 80s, early 90s, when I was working in what was called conceptual graphs, uh, basically knowledge graphs, sort of predecessor, if you like. And you had to basically understand the English language, know the grammar and program the grammar in a parser, uh, get whatever documents you can, try and parse it, right? So it's a one-year effort. Even if you have papers, you have to still write the code. No one, there is no yeah. GitHub to share the data. So just doing even the basics of extracting words uh, and nouns or verbs is a, is a one-year task. Now, as we all know, it is a one-line uh, code in Python or NLTK or, or whichever one yep. you choose. So that's what has sort of fundamentally changed. And of course, everyone talks about the deep learning and the computation that it's allowed, right? So the old machine learning, deep learning has progressed. So all of those things put together has created this groundswell. Of course, companies are using AI, so mainly triggered by the tech companies, and that has created almost a domino effect with other sectors. So overall, there is this push towards, yes, there is some value here. There's some productivity to be gained at a macroeconomic level. And that's what is sort of pushing uh, AI, if you like, uh, in, in, into this sort of the new area. And we have seen, of course, countries uh, last count, I think 45, 50 plus countries now have national AI strategies. Uh, and yep. I don't think there is any other technology uh, other than maybe the, the, the mobile and the 3G uh, uh, revolution where people had a 3G strategy or a 4G or a 5G now. Uh, but other than that, not many have ha technologies have had this kind of a strategy at the national level. No, I, you know, it's, it's actually interesting. And one of the things, it also, not only the value is being realized, as you said, it's the, it's the domino effect, right? When large companies are realizing the value, they're passing it on. And then suddenly all of this became all, all the more accessible. Like one mm -hmm. is the open source nature yeah. of the research. The other thing is compute, right? You yeah. can, you know, That's imagine, right. I'm sure during your research days, it was a budget line item to actually yep. go set up a deep learning system to go do it. Now, swipe of a credit card, a couple of hundred dollars in a day, right. and you have an entire system running. Uh, so, I mean, before before we go further into this topic of org um, organizations and businesses generating value with AI, as the artificial intelligence lead at PwC, I mean, just describe your typical day so we get a context. Uh, yeah. So I play a couple of roles at uh, PwC. So one is the AI lead or the global AI lead. Um, and the second one is more as an innovation lead within our emerging technology group, which sits within products and technology. And the third, uh, I'm also uh, very much in the delivery of projects to our clients in a, in a group called Analytics Insights. And then I, I love writing, so I get involved in more of the marketing thought leadership, analyst relations, and so on. So in some sense, I've been very fortunate to have this sort of wide portfolio of things spanning all the way from research. So I, again, due to the innovation angle, I made a lot of relationship with our university. So we work with at least uh, four or five large universities and academics. So I'm keeping that part of it and that allows me to work with startups and universities all the way to client projects, which are purely delivery projects. So I can see the spectrum of moving from what is a cool idea, theoretical idea maybe, or, or a practical idea sitting in, a, in an academic institution all the way to a, it gets implemented by a client and a consumer is using some of the, that's right, so that entire spectrum. So my typical day, I would say, if one understand my day as such, it is full of meetings, right? So <laughs> meetings after meetings uh, with uh, client projects, uh, with internal team members on innovation. So we'll jump into looking at a paper or, or discussing whatever uh, uh, algorithm uh, or, or a client solution, uh, all the way to developing course content for our own internal training or thought leadership and so on, right? So there's a whole spectrum. I tend to get more of the quote-unquote productive time uh, after hours or over the weekends, like like most other people <laughs> do. Uh, <laughs> You're always on. No, it's fascinating. It's great, your vantage point across all the way from research to implementations to thought leadership to do it. Were you involved in the sizing the price, the seminal work you guys did a few years yes, ago? Yes, so I very much drove that, yeah. I very much drove that. And at that amazing. time, there was that... quite a lot of work around 
automation and productivity by by Frey and others at, from Oxford University. So we focus less on yeah. that work. But my very strong view is that it's not just the productivity gain, it is the decision making, the augmentation is where AI will play. And I think just the way we consume media, just the way we are talking now, and everyone is a producer of content and a consumer of content as we were just talking. And that's fundamentally changed and largely driven by uh, the technology, obviously the mobile technology, but also the personalization technology, which allows yeah. us to tailor everything. And I can watch things in bite-sized pieces. I can just go and go exactly, oh, someone mentioned Advaita and AI in a, within a span of 30 seconds. Who else has done that? We can do that now, right? So in the earlier era, Absolutely. we could never do that. So the, I think that's what has sort of fundamentally changed everything, in my view. No, I, I agree. I think I like to say that, like, you know, what we're looking at is not just an automation revolution, which was all the past industrial revolutions, right? Uh, this industry for or the fourth industrial revolution is also an intelligence revolution, right? Yeah. It's about the world has become so much more complicated for us to do everything ourselves. So we're looking for other, how do we impart intelligence in non-living things that can mm -hmm. aid the human experience, right? And yeah. that's what this is all about. So uh, I was I was listening to one of your OECD talks, I think, mm -hmm. um, and you have some slides posted on your LinkedIn mm -hmm. too. And he talked about a very beautiful framework on how enterprises are realizing value with AI. Can mm -hmm. you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, so um, in the OECD, we were talking more about uh, use cases, right? So how do you actually get to uh, the business value? So. Uh, AI, again, as people refer to, is a general purpose technology, which means that it is applicable in every industry sector, right? So whether it is high tech, financial services, all the way down to uh, very old industries like agriculture, for example. So mining, uh, everywhere AI is applicable. And it's also applicable across all of the uh, uh, different functional areas whether it is marketing, mm -hmm. even strategy, um, operations, risk, uh, HR, right? So all of the functional areas. So take your industry sector, take your functional areas, then you start looking at the, the technology itself, at AI itself, right? So now, again, we talk about AI, but to me, data, analytics, automation, AI, they're all four pieces of the same jigsaw puzzle, right? So when you break that up and you break up AI further into text-based video, audio, right? Then you start getting a rich collection of use cases, right? So, and and that that is one of the methods by which, again, people have done many of this, so you don't have to repeat. And there's essentially a library of use cases and uses that are emerging. But what I also talk about, I think in some of my articles in Medium, it's good, but what I've realized that companies do now is they go very much use case-based development, which can be counterproductive, right? So in other words, what I'm saying is, they'll say, let me pick a natural language processing use case um, for my, um, uh, let's say finance function. Let me pick up a chatbot for my customer. Let me pick up some other deep learning algorithm for my underwriting. Now they're picking very disparate use cases. Now they're not thought through what and how they are going to get scale from these. So everything becomes a single team, even though it might be the same customer data that is needed, maybe similar techniques that are needed. So what I would like to, I mean, what I think of is think more in terms of the humans and what kinds of decisions we make and then align some of your use cases along that spectrum. Uh, in addition to your functional and the business unit area. So what I mean there is we, we tend to gather information, organize, right? So synthesize, summarize, do all of that, right? So that's one chunk. But then we start looking at predicting something, predicting based on historical information, predicting not based on historical information, but doing what if counterfactual type of analysis. In some cases, we are optimizing things. So just look for the verbs that people are using and we recommend things, so recommending solutions. If you look at the verbs, then I think the technique that 
AI or data science has aligns well with those. So you can pick one like predicting or recommending. Now, if you pick recommendation engine and recommending as the task, you can go and build recommendation engines across your organization, right? So don't have to have it just as one use case. You can do recommendation for your product. You can do recommendation for your service organization. You can do it for a FAQ, right, so for your HR. But underlying algorithm is the same. Don't try and pick totally disparate ones and, and then struggle with how do I connect everything, right? So uh, multiple angles there in terms of how you pick. Is it, you know, that it's very interesting. So one you, you touched upon is scale, right? So scale is an elusive thing in AI. Yeah. And part of the problem is it's a snowflake of individual products or pro, you know projects that everybody does, not thought through. This seems to be a really good framework. Mm -hmm. uh, but the, is, is it, do you recommend you do it this way because it allows you to build capability that can actually apply across multiple broad spectrum? Or is it because the data collection, curation, gathering, uh, that aspect is, is is similar across the function because that may not be right. You know, yeah. you might be doing a recommender system for product versus uh, next best action on the website right. will be yeah. two different. Yeah. So this would be more based on the capability and the techniques and harmonizing the techniques uh, more than actually uh, having the same data source. So what we have seen often happen is um, especially in large organizations. So the funding comes from the top, let's say they, they want to spend X million, they start saying, okay, so let's divide the, the pot into these five groups. Each one of you go do a use case, demonstrate whether you have value. Those teams then not really, they don't talk to each other, right? So they just go again, organizationally, they're probably embedded very much into their own silos. And then they worry about, yeah, let's just get the value. There is no connection between those until much later. So this is back to the 1990s where every organization had their own shadow IT. So the, there was no centralized IT, everyone did that. Then someone said, why are we wasting all this effort, right? So now instead of shadow IT, you have shadow data science everywhere, right? So everyone can pick up, I mean, as you said earlier, I can pick up a tool or I can pick up an open source. And as long as you, I have the right skills, I can just go ahead and do it without really considering the broader ramifications, right? So that's why I think connecting the pieces together and bringing at least one more thread of, uh, of cohesion there might be quite useful in addition to the other things that we just talked about. Got it. So, I mean, one, I, I like the way you framed it in terms of think about the human, think about the pe pre people aspect of picking use cases. I would also argue that it's kind of becoming, if that is what it means to be customer centric in AI, right? Yeah. On the one hand. Yeah. On this thing about uh, building capability, so do you also recommend that all organizations who are really seriously looking at AI should consider building an in-house capability of data science, the, the you know, or, or what kind of capability, like a center of excellence? Yeah. How do you go about it? What's your advice? So uh, I would say very much so. The, the medium-term, long-term vision should definitely be having an in-house um, group uh, that can do all of that, right? So the way I look at um, uh, AI today is very similar to the way computing was in the 80s, right? So 1984, mm. let's say, when, when the laptops was, was being introduced. Uh, so now no one asks, hey, why does everyone need a laptop? But they were asking that, right? So some famous people were saying, oh, I don't see more than need for more than four computers. Why are we having a personal computer? What does it really even mean? Why should a person need a computer? So it's a very similar thing. So now, of course, any organization, even a farmer in a, uh, in a village in India still is using a mobile to check on certain things and uh, and can communicate and, and get data, get, get results. So that's where uh, I think we are going with AI. So we are still at the early days of the 1984 uh, in the computing revolution. So that's why I'm saying that intelligence and intelligent systems will pervade everything that we do. So you better start building that given that that's your core capability, right? So any organization is building on some capability that they have, and uh, I think powering it with the AI would be useful. 
now of course skills are in shortage and and you need know how to do you may want to be my scar so you can get some external help but but eventually i think you do need an in-house group even if you're outsourcing many of that you need to know what is it that you want to outsource and how do you want to run that and so on uh, so i would say yes definitely build your capability you know talking about building and capabilities uh by the way that's great advice you've said data scientists are from mars and software engineers are from venus explain that yeah um this is something that um again started noticing uh around about 2017 18 i think in the one of the open data science conferences i i talked about this uh we're noticing that we were having a much more challenging time convincing the it departments and the cios on why data science was different than software engineering again coming from the software engineering background and then adopting data science right so i could see uh, the differences but that was not quite apparent uh, for the business world if you just say this is data science we work with data they are probably uh, willing to give you a pass on okay yeah you guys might be different to the uh, technology but the technology guys were very much no you guys write the, the programs in python we write it in uh, java or c++ or whatever language we have there's no there's no real difference no but there is a huge difference so what what we started looking at is uh, what is the software and what is a model right so machine learning model for example or any kind of a mathematical model what are the differences again there are a number of differences but i think first and foremost there is a mindset uh, uh, difference uh, softwares are really engineers data scientists by their very name they are scientists right so again you might say oh, just a terminology here but if you look at the way the models are developed you want to be experimenting with it right so when you start off uh doesn't matter uh, how much of data you give me and give me the problem i can't tell you precisely uh hey ganesh give me four weeks and i'll build you something which is 98% accurate i can't say that right so i might say that i might not be able to deliver but there's no uh, i need to try out different things so i might get a initial data set and i might play around with it and say maybe i get to 80% i say hey feel reasonably confident if you give me more data i can play around with some of the other more advanced techniques i can probably get you to 90 right so but that takes some time uh or if uh, in some cases i may not be able to do that and even after promising you my my accuracy will just asymptote out so in that sense it's very much experimental it's like the drug discovery right so i can have some time frames on on how i do but i can't guarantee the success so what are the key elements so it's sort of more a scientific endeavor it is a test and learn endeavor whereas the software engineers hey give me a scope give me a time just execute according to it so that becomes very difficult so now what we have seen organizations do is that they take the data scientists and put them into in, in agile teams within the software development now the agile teams might run a two week cycle or a four week cycle uh, either way you're putting data scientists and telling them hey in two weeks give me some insights so in two weeks by the time you collect the data massage the data start getting the extract you're just giving some descriptive statistics to them right so there's no depth in any of those insights so you really need to be running your data science experiments on a separate agile path and once they have been proven put it into your agile queue so we've talked a little bit about how to bring the two together but there's a fundamental difference in the mindset um in 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 one being very certain right so when a software is written and tested yeah. it will perform as 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 advertised whereas in ai the model will deteriorate over time right so and it is uncertain and we again find it very hard for business people especially to say Oh we'll give you an algorithm which is 98% accurate so they say what about that other 2% you mean to say you want all this money as a consultant and you want to give me something that can go wrong 2% of the time uh but that's the nature of the software right so uh there's a whole host of issues which sort of really distinguish uh software from data science and i think it's still very much in the early days people are just learning and communicating some of these things so we can get to a better methodology and again i see this very much as software engineering evolved very much in the 
place with so many methodologies and structures because it was now being used by a whole group of people, not just a few uh, in, in, in air-conditioned or ultra-air-conditioned labs to everyone using it. So I think there's a similar transition here if you have to get everyone to use AI to get that methodologies right. Interesting. And, you know, but, you know, it's fast changing too, right? You'll get more and more of the software uh, development cycles are now including intelligent systems as a part of it. Yep. And we, you know, you, you talked about, uh, I think you wrote about it in your blog on software 2.0. What is software 2.0? What does that evolution happen? What is 1.0 and what is the move into 2.0? Yeah. So this is a term uh, which was introduced, I think, by Andre Karpathy when he was at Stanford, not now at, um, uh, at a company now. Uh, so uh, the, the, the basic ethos on the software 1.1 is sort of traditional programming, right? So just as we just talked okay. earlier now, software where you basically write the code, data is put in, and it produces some output, right? So input, okay. output, and you write the code in between. Now, in software 2.0, it's more the models are embedded within the software, right? So intelligence, uh, 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 software applications powered by intelligence. Now, if you really want to understand software 2.0, I think there are three things that are coming together, right? So one, I would say, is the data. The second is the models, right? So the, the machine learning models or any type of model. And the third is the software, right? So the code or the compute. All three are coming together, and that's software 2.0. So now the challenge with the software 2.0 is now if you're just doing data science in the sort of the, the, the batch mode, if you like, you are very much in your, in your own little world. You've got the data from the other groups. You have tried various uh, uh, techniques, and you've got a model which you are comfortable, the business is comfortable. But now when you want to deploy it, you need to worry about a whole host of other things, right? So when you're uh, deploying it, it needs to be wrapped into some kind of an API service so that it can be constantly called by some other software. And then uh, you get into, yes, yeah, so software and models need to be interlinked so the software can call the model and get the answer so the, the model is embedded. But then you start wondering, uh, if this thing is changing now, uh, is it okay if I trained this model three years back and now everything has changed, right? So now the model is going to be inaccurate. It's not like the software of the, the previous world now. So I need to get the data. So I need a data pipeline to be feeding into my production model so that I can learn at some periodicity in the production. So uh, if you look at software 2.0 and trying to define it, it's sort of these three things coming together so that we can have the data feeding the model which is changing continuously, which may be real time or periodic, uh, but embedded within a software. So what are the methodologies for it? What are the evolving uh, roles for it, capabilities for it? All of those things need to be, I wouldn't say have to be invented all anew, but we need to be modifying what we know from the data engineering world, software engineering world, and all the modeling world into something that brings everything together. Interesting. Um, I had a guest on the show, uh, Laszlo Sragner. Uh, he's part of a, a early consulting group in called Hypergolic in the UK. And he's got this very provocative idea about like, look, we need to, and he comes from a hedge fund. So mm -hmm. in, in financial services companies, hedge fund, you're, you're a data scientist. Everyone is a data scientist doing yeah. that. But they don't write models that don't go into production, mm -hmm. right? So the mindset is about, how do I train or retrain the data science to think about all the software engineering capabilities, yep. which is one approach to solving this problem. The other thing is the disciplines, right? How do you really, I like to say that this AI at scale has an engineering problem, right? Yep. The, which is you have data, which we are trying to solve. We've gotten a lot better over the last mm -hmm. decade. Um, and then we have modeling and algorithms, which is now democratized and accessible for everybody. But the engineering practices to go industrialize it, put it in yep. production, is still lagging behind. That's so yeah. it's an interesting approach. This software 2.0 approach is actually very, uh, very just the realization that this is different than building software like you did before yeah. goes a long way. Um, yeah, very much so. Yeah, so, so talking about, uh, you know, before I go into roles, the one thing that, you know, you and I connected on three, four years ago was trust and ethics in AI, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, 
what is trusted AI? What the, what is ethical AI? And you, you define that, and why is it important for organizations and individuals to worry about that? Yeah. Um, so again, um, I think we know about the lot of opportunities of AI, right? So again, number of reports, number of things, everyone is exploiting the opportunities of AI. Uh, having gone through at least uh, a couple of the AI winters, uh, I think if we don't look and recognize the risks of AI, I think we fall fall into the same trap that we are we are hyping AI so much without really uh, considering any of the risks. We, we risk going into another winter, right? So uh, we should be, uh, I guess. Um, I would put it as cautiously optimistic, so optimistic for all of the opportunities, but let's be cautious on all the things that can potentially go wrong, not to prevent some of these things, but to mitigate some of those risks. So that's the reason why we, again, as a firm, uh, we are known as a, a, a risk-averse firm, right? So we build trust and, and we are very much a risk-reg uh, firm. So when we started looking at AI, so we put on that kind of a firm lens as well, where it's not just the opportunities of AI, let's look at the risks of AI. And uh, during this sort of similar time frame, I think to, starting from 2015, 2014, I think is, is when the SLMR conference happened, 2015, 16, uh, there's been a groundswell of AI ethics, uh, ethical AI discussions in the community, number of organizations, number of bodies really talking about ethical AI. And I think we are coming to a good consensus. There are some regulatory documents as well from EU and others sort of homing in on the, the few key things that everyone need to be looking at from a risk perspective tiering the risks in, in different ways, and then looking at the risks. The risks generally tend to be around fairness and bias, explainability of models so that you can explain it to a layperson or you can explain it to a statistician or explain it to a business person. So what does that mean? Uh, using different techniques can have different explanatory power, uh, looking at security, privacy, um, and also robustness, accountability, all of those issues, and then having some kind of a governance around it. So we define that as responsible AI. I know some people call it trustworthy AI, ethical. They, are, they might be slightly different in the way I think we define it, but there's a core set of principles that's emerging, which all go under this banner. So we tried not to use trustworthy AI. So again, this is just a philosophical quibble that I have that I think you can make what you are building responsible, but whether it is trusted or not comes from the consumers of the product. You can't label something as trusted, and therefore everyone should trust it. So I've always maintained that we should be responsible and let the customers trust us you know, if we really yeah. are good. I, I have a similar quip with um, uh, with ethical AI because yeah. what's my ethics versus somebody else's That's ethics? Right. It's going to be yeah. maybe different, right? No, we you know I have so many different directions I want to take this from, but we have to be conscious of time. Well, wrap it up for me in terms of like what kind of advice? What's uh, you know usable, easily addressable advice that you have for organizations? Uh, if they're starting with AI, if they're already in the journey on AI, how do they scale it? and for governing and worrying about the risks of AI. Just give, break it down and give me a set of recommendations yeah. for any organization. Yeah. So uh, I would say that, um, again, with our survey, we see 20, 30% of the large corporations are still exploring AI. I mean, they're just getting aware of AI. Maybe 40, 50% are experimenting with uh, AI. So if you are experimenting with AI, I would say a couple of key principles. So one is uh, think big, but start small. Right, so uh, you might have the vision, you may want to sort of expand it to the company level, but look for small pieces that you can build and demonstrate value. Uh, the mm -hmm. second one I would say is once you have demonstrated value, then scale, scale fast, scale big and scale fast so that you bring the organization along with you. Um, so, and the third one I would add there is build your own capabilities, right? So acquire, but again, you can 
have others help you, but you need to have your own in-house capability to, to grow. And while you're building it, I mean, this is the mantra of all the, all the responsible AI is design in the ethics, right? So don't look at your ROI for your experiment without considering any of the risks. And you can be very comfortable that there is an ROI, but the risks of it might outweigh all the benefits, right? So to be really true, you do need to take that into account, even at that early stage of experimentation, at least to some level. Then you have companies which, again, in, in our rough estimates, probably around 20, 25% of the companies which are really scaling AI. So for them, I think it's much more getting into this uh, factory mentality. So we call it the model factory, but the, and a number of clients uh, that we are working with have actually made this happen. So just as software applications are being developed by a number of people all deployed in a common platform and architecture, you want models also to be behaving in the same way. So back to our software 2.0, you need a complete end-to-end -end methodology, you need a top-down governance for, for it, and you need the different capabilities from uh, scoping the project to doing the data scientist experimentation to ML ops, data ops, DevOps, all the ops related people and continuous monitoring. So start building that end-to-end -end life cycle view of software 2.0, right? So the data model and software side, uh, and then very much embed the responsible AI principles within that so that when you are scaling it, especially, you don't fall fall into the trap of getting into some of the, the risk elements there and, and mitigate those risks because, before they blow up. So that's what I would advise the companies that are trying to scale. That's interesting. If I may summarize that, like you know, one, a couple of takeaways for me. One is, you know, ethics and guidelines among governance is not a after the fact, look back and monitoring problem. It is a how do you build it in right from the get go yes. problem, right? Yeah. Uh, if you're in the if you've started with AI, you've convinced on the value, focus on rapid experimentation, demonstrating storytelling, making sure everybody you get yeah. buy in in parallel to building capability in-house, right? And if you're already a scaled environment, start industrializing AI, put it into a factory, make sure you're developing and thinking through the software 2.0 elements to go make this successful. Yeah. Uh, beautiful, that's amazing. All right, I got some uh, bunch of quick fire questions for you and you know whatever comes top of mind, please let, us, uh, let me know. Uh, first, uh, what is that one problem in AI that you think everybody should be working on today? I would say, um, I'm not sure everyone, but the best minds should be working on uh, solving some of the more difficult problems, either in the health side or the health of the planet side. Uh, I think mm -hmm. that too many people, and there's probably too uh, a lot of money in getting people to click on buttons as opposed to getting to something more more tangible. Uh, either connecting back to the uh, to the planet or to serve or the AI for good, right? So data science and bringing, bringing some of the disparities, uh, 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 closing the disparity gap, if you like. So that's what- Got I'm it. You know, it's funny, you know, we, there was all this debate last few months started by Elon Musk on the ESG impact of mm -hmm. Bitcoin. I mean, God, if somebody did the study on the ESG impact of deep learning, yes, <laughs> we'll be all yep. in trouble. Right? Yep. Uh, so another question, give me a story of how we will be interacting with AI in 100 years. Yeah, 100 years is, uh, it's a big, uh, big jump, it's right? So <laughs> uh, this is something where AI and predicting anything in AI, I think it's even more difficult problem than actually developing the AI in my view, right? So almost everyone has got it wrong. So I don't believe that I'll get it right, but I tend to think in terms of uh, scenarios. So big student of scenario planning and, sure. and, and systems thinking. So there is a very utopian view of AI, uh, which would be that yeah, no, AI is taking over. Uh, again, we may or may not have general intelligence, really don't even worry about it, right? So we might have AI that is very much uh, like our companion, right? So like a mentor for us, right? So very much caring, nurturing us, uh, all the way from 
teaching us as we grow, but we get again and again better with the AI, right? So it's augmented intelligence in almost every walk of life, right? So uh, if I want to know something on a specific subject, I go and ask my AI. And again, whether there are implants that directly go into your brain or you just get taught by classical methods, I don't know, whatever it is, but I think uh, utopian view where it is very much uh, side by side with us, uh, working together. Even if it is super intelligence, it is under our control, if you like. Uh, and we are working together is a sort of the utopian view. The dystopian view, um, I think that's also a possible scenario. I mean, earlier I used to not so much entertain all of that. I was sort of very much a technology person. Yeah, those things won't happen. But the more I see, the more gray hairs I get. Uh, I, I still give some credence to the uh, to the dystopian view, right? So we have seen um, some of these things uh, change, right? So how um, just the very, just take personalization as one element of it and the way we consume our news and the way that it has polarized our society, right? So US and other places, but more so in US, I think that's really shocking to me that everyone believes in their version of the truth. And I know starting from symbolic logic, there's only one truth, right? So otherwise it, the definition doesn't make sense, right? A fact or a truth is, is inviolable. But now we have everyone talking about my version of the truth versus your version of the truth. Oh, they don't go inside. Oh yeah, that's okay, that stuff, right? So we are all coming from different backgrounds, it's okay. That sort of blows me away, right? So there's, there's, there's nothing to stand on as humanity if, if everyone has their own version of the truth. And so very soon we'll have 7 billion versions of that truth, right? So that's the dystopian view, right? So would AI cause that? Or would we just say no more AI because of all the things that that could potentially cause? I don't know. That's fascinating. You know, unless you're Donald Trump's press secretary, you <laughs> usually have only one version of the truth. Anand, this has been such a pleasure. It's been awesome. How can the viewers and listeners connect with you on the internet? Um, they can connect me on LinkedIn uh, or my Medium post. Uh, I can give you some of those details. Uh, LinkedIn, Medium, Twitter, any of those. Awesome. I'll have it on the show notes. So, Anand, this has been such a pleasure. Um, um, you know, I wanted to actually spend more time talking about and exploring a lot of these subjects. I'm sure there's a future episode in the books to continue some of those different divergent conversations too. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you for having me. Enjoy the conversation. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, I encourage you to do three things. Number one, share with your friends and family. If someone else can learn from this, get inspired and take action, they need to. Number two, subscribe so you do not miss a single episode. You can do it at your favorite podcast location or at youtube.com. Number three, let me know if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for me or my guests. And check out storiesinai.com to access show notes and more resources. Thank you for listening. See you next time.